From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to the Friday edition of Open Line. I'm your Friday host, Colin Donovan, Vice President for Theology here at EWTN. Uh, Winging it alone today and uh, hopefully not crashing and burning, so uh, say a little quick prayer for that on this great feast day of the the Sacred Heart. Uh, So uh, just to get our phone numbers in, so if you've got a question, you can call in on, on... on uh, Catholic theology, or and I'll take a stab at uh, anything I might have an answer to. So uh, that number would be one eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number one eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Or if you're outside the United States, one two zero five two seven one twenty nine eighty five. That's country code one. 205-271-2985. And of course, we're streaming on EWTN.com, on many, uh, on many smart TVs, and uh, the EWTN app, of course, on smart devices. And uh, you can also watch us on EWTN Radio's Facebook page and on our YouTube channel as well. So, uh, And on those last two, you can uh, put in submit questions as well. So uh, we will um, we will take your questions in either of those methods. Uh, of course, uh, today, as I alluded, is the uh, solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And in the secular world, we have the feast of the uh, Father's Day, if you will. Uh, of course, every day is a, a Father's Day. When we're talking about the Divine Father, and I'll get into that in a moment. But let's uh, congratulate all fathers. Uh, they are representatives of the Divine Father from whom their office as natural fathers comes. Uh, We thank also uh, all spiritual fathers who similarly are representatives of Jesus Christ, uh, who is the Son of the Father, and therefore they too uh, receive their offices uh, from the Father, and we rightly call them Father for that reason. So we'll be celebrating that on Sunday. And we have to remember the uh, the great characteristic of fatherhood, uh, looking to the Divine Father for, uh, for that in particular, and that is mercy. Pope John Paul II in his encyclical on Divine Mercy, Dives in Misericordia, uh, wrote beautifully on this subject and describing that the Father's love reaches down in mercy to the sinner to pick them up and lift them up from their misery. That's what mercy does. And that's a good model for human fathers as well, uh, to be able to act mercifully within the family, to act mercifully with the, as employees, uh, to mac- act mercifully in, con- in contexts where perhaps justice seems the most suitable course, but there is also an opportunity to temper that with mercy to reach down and help another human being or to help our own small child in ways that they don't may, maybe don't appreciate now, but in the long run they will appreciate. So I think the Heavenly Father gives a great model of fatherhood 
Uh, for the rest of us, uh, I myself am a father of two children, and so we can imitate him in the carrying out our fatherhood. And we can also appreciate the love and attention that is uh, given to us on this Sunday as well. So happy Father's Day to all fathers out there, both natural fathers and spiritual fathers. It is, of course, also the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And tomorrow will be the Feast of the Immaculate Heart, or the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart. And these two hearts are joined, and this is something we should always remember. Speaking of the Father, I noted that this, uh, the greatest attribute of love is mercy, reaching down and lifting up the sinner. Well, this is incarnate in the Word made flesh, in Jesus. And the human heart is a symbol of love. We use this commonly in our culture, and all, all cultures have done so. Uh, to speak of the heart and to point to the heart as a, as what we make of a gift of another, especially to somebody uh, who will be our spouse or is our spouse or a, a loved one uh, of any category. And so the heart is a, is a radiant symbol of this divine love, the heart of Jesus, as it is of human love itself. And of course, that divine heart could not have become flesh were it not for the yes of Our Lady, for the fiat of Our Lady. And this is the reason for the association in the Catholic Church of Jesus and Mary in so many ways, but in particularly in connection to this feast days, because we celebrate the Sacred Heart tomorrow, God made man, showing out his heart as a sign of his love for us and the gift of himself in salvation for us but also Our Lady, who said yes to that plan of the Father without reservation and acted and carried it through in every way in her own life uh, in, in helping the, along the mission of her divine Son. So uh, we can tie these three, three days together, Father's Day, the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart. This doesn't happen all the time. The Sacred and Immaculate Hearts are moving feasts in connection with Trinity Sunday and Corpus Christi. Uh, and then usually the following, uh, the following week is these two feast days. Uh, so that moves around depending on when Lent begins and Easter comes and so on. But this year we have this happy coincidence of these three days in a row. Today the Sacred Heart, tomorrow the Immaculate Heart, and Sunday on Father's Day. When we should, of course, honor our Divine Father as well as our natural and spiritual fathers. So I think uh, that's that's something uh, to 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 think about uh, as we go into into the holiday. Let me take a, a quick question here from from Clay, uh, who sent it in. He asks, "When the innocent baby boys were murdered by Herod in his attempt to kill Jesus, was John the Baptist in danger of his life?" Well. It would seem that was unlikely since the place where the uh, soldiers, Roman soldiers, presumably were sent was to Bethlehem because this is what the prophets had spoken of, that out of, uh, out of Bethlehem would come this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed king. And so John the Baptist was in uh, a, a little town not too far from uh, Jerusalem, but in the other direction, uh, to the west of Jerusalem. And so in Ein Karim, uh, this is where uh, Mary went for the visitation, where Zachary and uh, Elizabeth were. 
So he was no in no danger because he was not in uh, not in Bethlehem, and of course in God's uh, the Father's uh, will and providence, Jesus was rescued from that danger uh, by the angel, and the command to Joseph to take the boy and flee into Egypt. Uh, so ultimately, neither of them were at risk, although the target, our Lord, uh, was the one that they were seeking in Bethlehem. We have another question from Beth, who asks, I'm a Protestant looking into Catholicism, but I struggle with the idea of venial and mortal sin. Can you help me to understand this? Well, if we look to the Old Testament, almost all sin is spoken of in terms of mortal sin, because what is the penalty for most of the things that are spoken of, the great sins against the different commandments, was a capital punishment. Now, in the natural order, that signifies the greatest crimes, but it is, it's, to us, it symbolizes those crimes which in some grave instance or circumstance or character offend greatly against God. That's what a mortal sin is, something which offends against God. You have others put other gods before you, you offend against God directly. Uh, you take his name in vain for, say, to swear an oath that you don't intend uh, to keep or he is not truthful. You are uh, taking his name in vain. Uh, you don't bother to give him worship to keep the Sabbath holy, whether it's the Jewish Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath. This is, uh, this is a serious matter because God, God commands it. It's do him injustice, and we should. And then you go down the commandments. And in each of those, there is something of, of a grave matter. And this is often you can look, as I say, in the, in the Old Testament were different sins. Adultery, for example, uh, or homosexual practice, both of these brought the death penalty. It was to be cast out of Israel. Uh, that gives us an indication of the seriousness of those two sins and uh, any number of others that are mentioned there. But we don't always sin because we intend to offend God or reject his will and reject his, reject his authority. Maybe we, our will is weak, we have a weakness of will, or maybe our intention is to do some good, but in reality it's a misguided uh, choice of how to do good. There can be all kinds of reasons that we don't offend in the most serious way, and that is, I know this is forbidden, but I'm going to do it. That's called venial sin, and that's how the church comes to that, uh, that distinction. So when we get back, we'll uh, take your questions and uh, many more. Call us at those numbers, 833-288-EWTN or 205-271-2985. Back in a moment. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, we're back with Open Line Friday. Uh, Colin Donovan here. Uh, Jack Williams uh, is off doing something else today. So I've got the show in the mic all to myself. And uh, uh, one of the things I want to note is that uh, there is a, a world over. Where don't, you don't want to miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on the world over with Raymond Arroyo. 
Uh, of course, that airs first time on Thursdays and re-airs uh, a couple times after that. You can also get news from the world over in your e- email box uh, inbox every single day. Uh, sign up today. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Uh, so uh, that that's the way to get your world over coverage and uh, news on uh, on other events as as well as the programming events themselves. One thing uh, to note is, uh, let me give you those uh, numbers once again, and that is for if you're outside, if you're in North America, rather, uh, you can call in at 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Or if you're outside uh, North America, one 205-271-2985. You can also ask your questions on our radio Facebook page or on our YouTube channel uh, page as well, where we're streaming. Well, let's go to our first caller, uh, Eric in Michigan. Good afternoon, Eric. Oh, hello. It seems to me that a lot of evangelicals, maybe more the fundamentalist stripe, uh, insist on like a 6,000 or so year old earth Mm-hmm. And uh, to the point of, it seems like an obsession, and I don't know why this is. I wonder if you could give some insight into this and where they get this idea from. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they get it from what they take to be a literal reading of the book of Genesis, uh, where the word day, yom, in Hebrew, uh, for as far as Jews understand it and scripture scholars understand it, has a general meaning of a period of time, everything from a day of 24 hours to a longer period. Uh, so there is al- already, with the very first uh, sentences of the, bo- of the Bible, an interpretive element. Uh, the Bible doesn't read itself to you. You interpret it, and you interpret it in, si- in a tradition, uh, the Jewish tradition had a way of interpreting, and the Christian tradition did. It was essentially a non-scientific way, and that's the way uh, history was uh, trans- transmitted in the past. You see this in all, all of the cultures. Sometimes it was fabricated history and the myths. Other times it was simply the oral communication of a tribe or a people's uh, history, and uh, in the case of the Jews, eventually written down. So it but it takes a perspective that the inspiration of Scripture guarantees a factuality on all areas, including this point of six days of creation in the sense of a 24-hour day. That means that then, in other matters, the calculation of the history of of humanity is going to be based on the information that is in Scripture, and there have been, uh, there was, uh, I believe his name was Bishop Usher, if I'm not mistaken. He, I think he was an I- Church of Ireland bishop in a couple hundred, three hundred years ago, who put together all of the genealogical information in Scripture that he could find and came up with an estimate of 6,000 uh, 6, years. Uh, part of that, I think, was also an understanding that some have had of an era of being a thousand years based on the book of Revelation. So you have, you know, this year and that year and so on. And and finally, the final era uh, will, of course, be the eternal rest, the, the seventh day Sabbath of creation. So it's going from the extremely literal to the more, you know, general and, and get driving a theology from that. There was a, cha- a time when the church would have generally, uh, you know, gone along with that in 
uh, general sense. Uh, there would be many Catholic authors who would take that. Uh, but I think now today in our era, for Catholics at least, we understand that uh, as the church has always understood, and that is that Scripture has a the purpose of conveying salvation history according to the mind of the author, and God uses that human author to also convey to us religious truths. So if you read Dei Verbum, the, the document on the divine word in the Second Vatican Council, it, it talks about this element of it, that the literal meaning is the meaning intended by the human author, upon which God can then build, and through the inspiration which guides the activity of the human author, he can convey to readers of every generation truths about salvation history. So those who wrote down the book of Genesis and the, and the other books of the, of the Torah, for example, would not have had our sci- neither our scientific ideas or our literal ideas in quite the way that, you know, have been conceived down through the generations, I think, in the church. But we can, that's fine, because the church doesn't say that they have to have as their intention any more of that. But the Holy Spirit then conveys to us many things, foreshadowing of the uh, through the types of the old covenant, the the uh, the what would come in the new covenant, the liturgy, the sacraments, Christ, Our Lady, uh, the the priesthood, the three orders of the you know three orders of the, of the clergy, the bishops, priests, and deacon, uh, represented in the old covenant by the high priest, the priests, and the Levites. So you find all these things foreshadowed. The, the Jewish people were clueless of what these would bring about in the Messianic era. We're not clueless because we have Christ and the apostles teaching us about what these things mean. So when it comes to the early creation, the church today accepts that this gives us, it shows to us, for example, that everything that was created was created by God and nothing was created without God. In fact, one of the Lateran councils, I believe, in the 1200s said that in the same instant, all spiritual things and all material things were created. In other words, all the angels and the material creation itself. But we know that the material creation develops over time, that different matter changes and becomes different things. And so science in the last several hundred years, has developed a deeper understanding of what this means, whether it's the, the organization of uh, in the early uh, creation to from the, the galaxies and then stars and then so on. And you get uh, down, to, down to planets and so on, and we end up with, in our own uh, circumstances. So all of these things take case uh, take place according to the natural laws which God instilled in the universe. And so, therefore, when we are told that uh, in the beginning God created, he said, let there be light. Uh, sounds very suspiciously like what the scientists are saying, that the first thing created was light, energy, and from that came everything else. 
by the miracle of God's laws instilled within it. So the church understands the ways differently and can praise the work of scientists who come up to these conclusions, as both Pius XII did in the 1950s, telling astronomers how the billions of years that they are finding that the universe has been in existence gives uh, a wonderful image of, the, of the, the vastness and the greatness and the glory of God. God is not small and, and short-lived and eternally, short-lived temporally, but he's eternal. And so he's compared to us infinite. And you see a better reflection of that in the universe than you do with uh, a six-day creation and, uh, <clears throat> and, and a universe that uh, 6,000-year uh, history uh, and a universe which is eventually, ultimately considered very small. So the church lets science do its job. Uh, it cautions it not to apply false philosophical principles to it, such as to say human beings arise from matter alone, since God must infuse the spiritual nature into man, uh, and many other things that have been said in caution to scientists, <clears throat> but ultimately lets them do their work. Uh, and then corrects what it knows from the truth, the uh, revealed uh, revelation, and through the charism that the magisterium has, uh, it is pre prepared to correct false conclusions, uh, as Pius XII did in Humani Generis regarding the origin of the soul and the body, uh, as John Paul II did in cautioning uh, regarding the evolutionary view in the 90s. So the Church sees the beauty of the scientific pursuit, but that's not revelation. Revelation is what God gives us about ourselves and our relationship to him and what we owe him in gratitude for all that he has gifted us in creation. Well, let's move on to uh, Roy, who is in Sioux City, Iowa. Good afternoon, Roy. Good afternoon. Thank, thank you for your time. I'm just asking a question of how you would suggest uh, I, I would respond to someone. Uh, a relative recently uh, approached me about the wedding, and with with obviously I was listening to your response on mortal sin, and I'm not sure if it's a mortal sin or if it how you would suggest proceed if I warn them that it is, or if I suggest confessional, or I know we, we don't want to respond with hostility or mm -hmm. anything but love, but silence doesn't seem to be my nature anymore and mm -hmm. in terms of my faith and trying to live out my faith. I, I, I feel uh, that I need uh, some suggestions or some sure. advice on how I would respond to this relative that you know, claim, uh, identifies or claims to be Catholic. Okay, Thank I, you. I, I, sure. Uh, stay, stay on for a second. I have another. I have something to ask you. You sort of blipped out there uh, electronically oh, when sorry. you were describing what, what the characteristic of this marriage is at question. It's it's a lesbian wedding. Okay, it so it's it's that. performed okay. in Israel, but yeah. they were lesbians. Yeah. Well. Um, you know, our Lord says that we should give fraternal correction. He tells us how to do it, to do it to the individual, to bring the others. If that doesn't work, to bring it to the church. He's speaking of those in the church. 
There's also a long tradition in moral theology. If you go to Aquinas and many other authors, uh, moral authors on moral theology, uh, Alphonse Liguri and others, and that is the proper way to give fraternal correction. Fraternal correction simply given in order to, you know, point out a fact that is not going to get or be received. In other words, if you correct somebody who probably knows they're sinning and all you're doing is having the satisfaction of telling them that, that's not going to be effective. And so uh, there is a good right way and a wrong way to give that, and I think we're going to take that up after the break. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, we're back after the break, and uh, I was answering a question about fraternal correction of uh, somebody who was entering or had already entered into a marriage uh, with a person of the same sex. Uh, And this would apply to those who are contemplating such a marriage and others who are being asked to participate, go to, and uh, otherwise applaud and approve such a marriage. I I think on, on this day in which we have the blasphemous um, uh, ridicule of the faith that will take place in Dodger Stadium tonight. Uh, it's a good day to talk about this topic. Uh, and so uh, that, that's what I will do. So in answer to the question, fraternal correction certainly is something that is valuably given because it does a number of things. Uh, it tells the person that they are doing something sinful And to those who know of the correction, it tells them also what is sinful in a particular situation. So regarding uh, gay marriage and, and, and gay behavior, generally sexual behavior. And so that's that would be the basis of the reason for doing it. And it's a charity to to give that fraternal correction. Now, fraternal correction ought to be prudence, and that sort of gets to what our Lord is talking about in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and that is that you, you correct the person, assuming all the prudential situation is, correct, is, is uh, suggested, and that you, uh, if they don't listen, you bring others. If they don't listen, you can bring it to the church. That presumes, of course, a person who would you know, give a hoot about the church, church's opinion on something. I think that's probably not the circumstance here. Uh, A person who's contemplating uh, such uh, a wedding or uh, now we have the oddity going on when people having transgender surgeries then marry each other. Uh, So almost a uh, a double whammy there. What do you do about that situation? Our, Our culture applauds it. It's going to be applauded tonight. Uh, it's applauded all the time in the in the press. Uh, it's applauded sometimes even by Catholics and even by Catholic clergy. What do you do about that? 
Sometimes you could tell immediately it's, you're wasting your breath to correct an individual privately even. Uh, you can do it for what it's worth. I think if you're asked to go to such an event, there's an opportunity to say, well, I can't go. Uh, or you know, entering invalid marriages of any kind would, would be such a case. Well, I, ca- I can't go. Uh, well, why not? Well, I-, I believe it's wrong. Yeah, but why won't you respect my conscience? The answer to that is, why won't you respect mine? I believe it's wrong. You want to be able to do what your conscience tells you? I am going to do what my conscience tells me. So that ought to be, first of all, our our position when we encounter someone who is demanding that we uh, give allegiance to the, to this kind of a fact, uh, that this is a marriage and that it's even possible to be a marriage. And it isn't, of course. So you can't go and affirm something which is not true. Uh, that would be invalid marriages of all kinds. It might be a little bit different in the case of a child who just marries outside of the church and doesn't have the, uh, will not do it according to the Catholic form. The parents are torn there, and sometimes they feel, well, you know, I want to keep their, you know, close to them, so I'm not happy about it. I'm going to sit in the back or whatever. They, they, I can understand that choice being made. But in a case like this, there is really no rationale by which you could justify going and participating in it because it's a direct, uh, it's a direct assault on the divine order that has been established in creation. Now, that's quite different from condemning anybody. It's simply saying, I don't believe this to be a valid wedding. I'm not going to go. And I'm standing on my conscience as I have the right to do and as I ought to do. And they could repeat the same thing back to you. So if you expect to have any traction with anyone, you have to know your audience. Will it do any good to explain the matter to them? Or have they heard it 10,000 times and will ignore you? Uh, then you're wasting your breath, and it's, and it's not going to be fruitful of fraternal correction. There's no obligation to give it then. Obviously, it's someone you love, a family member. You may feel that, well, it's worth it to know continue, them to continue know how I stand on this and try to reach out in, in love in all other respects, but on this point, stand firm. So these are very hard situations today, but I think the question of invalid marriages, as tough as that is, is a lot less morally problematic on how to handle than uh, gay marriages uh, of any species or transgender marriages of any species uh, because of their, their very nature, uh, contrary to nature. So I think... Um, if you have some traction with this individual and they might be willing to learn from what you can tell them, fine. I don't think otherwise you're under any obligation to give that fraternal correction. Well, let's go to Washington State and uh, Raymond. Good afternoon, Raymond. Good afternoon. Go ahead with your question. Yes, uh, a little similar, but uh know somebody that's... Uh getting married, uh, not in the church, probably uninvited uh, by a judge or minister at their home. And this person has had some Catholic background, maybe a baptism, I don't know. But anyway, uh, you know, I guess what is the church's faith? Are we allowed to attend? It's a little similar to the last question. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so it... it, it 
it, it, at least as that element is correct, is your, what you're saying, I guess. Um, well, this is a debate even among canonists because right now the oblig obligation of Catholics is to what's called the Catholic form. In other words, each of us as Catholics, when we marry, if we have two Catholics, you must go through the pastor of one of the, the, the future spouses and make the arrangements for your marriage, even if you're going to be married out of state or by a different priest, maybe your uncle is a priest or, 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 or something like that. Uh, to make those arrangements, you get dispensations of place and, and celebrant and all of these kinds of things. And you're married according to the Catholic form of marriage, which ensures that the, the validity of the words, of the vows themselves, among, among many other things. So that would, be the, that would be the issue. And in the United States, we are obliged to that. In, and that's not always the true, and it was not always true here either. But part of it was because of the, you know, the immigrant experience of Catholics coming into the country, uh, being surrounded by Protestants. Uh, Catholics to, uh, were told they should send their kids to Catholic schools where they're available uh, to protect their faith and to make sure that their marriages are valid to follow the Catholic form. So even canonists debate whether the Catholic form is really necessary anymore, but yet it still exists. Uh, one can renounce the faith, which I wouldn't encourage somebody to do, uh, even if they think that might well, I'll renounce the faith, and then I don't have to worry about what the church thinks about my marriage. I wouldn't encourage that because it just makes it a little bit harder and less likely that they will ever uh, come back to the church, I think, as well. So I think the advice I was saying, the, the way in which family members are torn apart by marriages that are less than uh, ideal or not absolutely certain— uh, is the way to go. If this is a peripheral family member, you know, and not your favorite sibling or or your da own daughter or something like that, uh, I think the choice is clear. It's likely an invalid marriage based on the justice of the peace situation. Although, you know, once baptized Catholic, you're always a Catholic. Uh, so unless the church changes that obligation of the Catholic form, then it is by law an invalid marriage. So it is a diff difficult choice, and I would say, um, you know, you could try the conscience approach and see, because a Catholic can always simply conclude, well, I will ask for the proper dispensations. They're not that difficult to get. You have to jump through some hoops, however, in terms of premarital training and so on, and a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So that, that certainly contemplates it for a lot of people. And, oh, we want to be married. The church is wait, making me wait six months. Uh, we want to be married on, you know, the day we met two years ago or whenever it was. And so they make it complicated, and then they, the church can't come up to their standards, and they go get married somewhere else, ma making an invalid marriage. Well, all of that is resolvable by a little common sense. Uh, but I don't know. You can try the common sense route. Um, but ultimately, I think a justice of the peace marriage between, uh, between individuals who, uh, one of whom is, uh, knowing it, whom you know to be baptized. If it's a suspicion, I don't think you're necessarily obliged to go, you know, pigeonhole them and ask them. But if you know that they're baptized Catholic, then you know they have an obligation to marry in the church. 
You could inquire a close family members what the situation is um, and, or, or, and get a little bit more detail and maybe do some good, maybe raise some questions they haven't thought of, maybe help move them in the direction of the church, even if not in the circumstance of this wedding. Uh, so I think that's the way to, to approach that. Is that any help? Well, thank you, Colin, but I think the uh, decision on their part is going to be aside from any questions I ask them. I think <laughs> the decision made, yeah. there's an immigration issue, and they mm-hmm. want to get this done real fast. And, yeah. Well, and, I wouldn't uh, go in that situation. Well, they're... Determined. They're, quasi, they're quasi-related. And, yeah. You know, uh, it's just... You know, yeah. No, whether and, I agree with it or not, I, they're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, the it's because it's charity. Charity can lapse when the when the difficulty is present. Uh, it's typically called inconvenience in moral theology. Uh, you don't have to burn all your other bridges in order to uh, to tell them something that they're going to disregard anyway. Would be the way to think of that. I think. So anyway, we'll keep the, keep that in, in their prayers, and maybe they don't, you know, see the light before the wedding, but uh, God has a plan for them, too, and we can trust him that he wants them back in the fold uh, uh, more than we do as well. Well, let's move on then. Uh, we have some open lines if you uh, to uh, want to call on that. Our number is... 1-833-288-3986, 1-833-288-3986, or if you're outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. That's 1-205-271-2985. Let me take a, uh, uh email question here. Topher asks, why don't Eastern Catholics say the filioque, and how can we use it if they don't accept it. What uh, Topher is referring to here is the fact that in the, in the Orthodox churches, from which the Eastern churches, uh, Eastern Catholics have returned to be in communion with, uh, with, uh, with the Pope, they use a creed that is, the, as originally from the Nicene and Constantinopolitan um, councils. And the filioque is not uh, not added. The, the idea of the and of the Son is what that references from the that the Son that the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, and not just from the Father alone. That was added in the West in order to distinguish the way in which Christ comes from the Father from the way in which the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. So we know that in, in God, the Father is the, is the principle, and he pours out himself in the Word, and they pour themselves out in love, the Spirit. And in this, by this eternal processions of the persons, we have the triune persons, but yet the one divine nature. So the filioque was a way of distinguishing, otherwise you, the Son from the Holy Spirit in that the Son doesn't, the Spirit doesn't just come from the Father, but from the Father through the Holy Spirit, as some of the Eastern Fathers said. 
So in the West, we say from the Father and the Son, and in the East, they don't say uh, from the Son there. Now, it, it, there's a way of understanding it in the Eastern theology, and that is the one I, I alluded to, that the, fa- the Spirit comes from the Father through the Son. And there may be an, in, uh, an inclination there to see that as that we have not having a co-equal principles, but in reality, the Son himself comes from the Father, so we're not, it's not a, a distinction without a difference, but rather we're distinguishing between the procession of the Spirit versus of the Son. And our formularies that we use in Mass, uh, that we re- everything goes to Christ through the Son in the Holy Spirit, or goes to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, and comes from the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, also indicates uh, this the triune nature of the Godhead. So what Eastern Catholics are trying to do is they're, in a way, serving as a bridge to the East generally, to the Orthodox churches as well. And the church has not gone and inserted the Latin filioque into the creed that is used in those Eastern churches. But it accepts that they mean that it means the same in the creed that existed for hundreds of years from the time of uh, uh, the Council of Constantinople in the 300s up to the time the filioque was, uh, was added. So it's the same faith, but I think it's a way of recognizing that the complete reunion of the East will be resolved at least in part when the filioque question is resolved. And how that's to be understood that that both acknowledges the the principal role of the Father in the Trinity, but also this, you might say, this secondary role, and that's not a very good rule, too, because it's not a temporal connection, but this role for the Son in the procession of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that language has, has to be developed, and that are, those arguments are discussed in uh, in theological co- uh, congresses and, and meetings of uh, ecumenical meetings with the Eastern uh, Orthodox churches. But the popes have decided that this is not something to be imposed on the Eastern Catholics because of their longstanding practice and the fact that this was the practice of the church uh, herself for about four or five hundred years. So uh, it recognizes the orthodoxy of that uh, intermediate practice before we added filioque in the West. Well, let's go to uh, Bobby in Spanish Fort, uh, Alabama, with a question. Good afternoon, Bobby. Good afternoon, Colin. It's been ten years since the last one was a good one. You answered to me. Um, okay. I remember well. But yes, sir. Here's the question. Okay, it's not good. We all know it's kind of melting down. But mm-hmm. two nieces, both brilliant intellectually, academically, working as medical doctors. One's a surgeon. Okay. Getting married. One got married outside the church. These are Catholics, of course, mm-hmm. all the way through. Fell, fell away, no longer practicing. After consulting all kind of canon law documents, and Orthodox, Orthodox in the Catholic sense, priest, I uh, determined that I could not go. It would be a mortal sin for me to give scandal to them, no matter how the milk toast suburban priest couch it. At the end of the day, I believed in my heart that it would be giving scandal to everyone there, as well as my nieces and their subsequent children. 
Got another one lined up to get married here in the near future. Works as a psychiatrist. And uh, I'm going to have to do the same thing. And I just wanted your thoughts. Just, you know, I trust your opinion a lot, but is in fact, it in fact a mortal sin for a Catholic to attend a wedding? Prior to the 70s, I think everybody would have agreed, but now it's kind of splintering. And mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I'll just yeah. and, listen. and, and I, th- I think part of it is that the canon law does not, uh, there is no prohibition in canon law. What there is is a prohibition from clergy assisting at it. That is, that is one of the canons. Close, clergy may not assist at such a wedding. That gives you the mind of the church. And, of course, the moral law, you know, and the theology of marriage would, would also tell you that. So I, I, it doesn't sound to me like it's any different situation, frankly. Uh, and if you don't have the personal ties where uh, some kind of acknowledgement of it, even if it's not an approval, uh, and I always tell parents when they, you know, sometimes I'd get these calls, uh, get these calls on the phone. You need to tell them that you don't agree with this, that you don't think it's a valid marriage. Uh, but, you know, you will do something like maybe sit in the back or you will come to the, to the wedding reception not to give gifts, but let you know that uh, you haven't abandoned them as their child. And Mother Angelica would give uh, that kind of advice as well. But in the end, it's, a, it's, as you say, it's a situation of conscience. If you're not in agreement with the wedding and you're there for some other purpose such as you may have to preserve a relationship, then the wedding is not where your, uh, any mortal sin would be committed. The commi- commission of that would be in the affirmation of it in a way that people took that as an affirmation, which you have the opportunity to dispel them of that. I'm here because it's my daughter, but I disagree with her decision. Or you stay away. Now, practically speaking, I've heard arguments from parents both ways. The most persuasive argument, I think, is the one that you've given. I remember years ago, a woman called to tell me after a similar conversation on on Open Line. uh, She said that, you know, you'd be surprised, but... I was one of those couples, or one of those parents of such a couple, and they wrote us off for a decade, had nothing to do with us, but eventually they melted and they came back and said, you were right. And they did what they, the, the couple did what they had to do in order to get, to get their marriage validated in the church. Usually it's a correction of a question of form. You know, it's young people, they're not going to follow the rules, they're going to get married by whom they want, where they want, when they want, and they don't follow the form, and they enter, they don't use the Catholic form, they're entering an invalid marriage. But they need only go back and say afterwards, we were foolish. Can we get these dispensations? And the church will give it and forgive it, and boom, providing there's not a marriage that's prevent a previous marriage that's preventing it, it's taken care of by the church, by granting it after the fact. Now, some things can't be resolved that way, obviously, because you marry a person who themselves was divorced and in an invalid marriage, and maybe even tried to get an annulment and couldn't because they were told it was a valid marriage, and they went off and got married anyway. There's no solution to that short of the death of the other party, of the, the, you know, the uh, the alleged spouse's actual spouse, 
that person dying. But many things can be uh, taken care of, and it only means talking to the tribunal in the diocese, talking, going through your pastor, through any priest in the diocese, and getting to that. There's a lot of things that can be fixed all circumstantially. In other words, what happened, by whom, when, what was the background, that tells the, the church what we can do and what we can't do. Sometimes it's a factual matter. Uh, I know of a case where somebody who had been in a previous marriage, the other person hadn't been baptized. They only found that out later. And when they learned that that was not a, a sacramental marriage, you know, and there are the two privileges, Pauline and Petrine, that might apply there, depending on the case, they went to the church and it was fixed. So people don't despair. You can, if you have questions about your own wedding, Talk to somebody in the, in the diocese. Talk to a priest. Get the details, because oftentimes the details will clarify uh, whether or not um, it really was an invalid uh, marriage, a sacramental marriage to begin with, or an invalid one. So I think those are, those are important, important things. And maybe you married somebody who had been married once before. They married invalidly, so you're, that you weren't validly married to them. Um, you thought, or at least you thought you weren't, and in actuality were. So there's a lot of circumstances that can be fixed up, obviously. So that's that's what I would encourage. But it sounds like your case uh, seems fairly straightforward. Let me make a quick programming note here, and that is that uh, on Saturday on EWTN Bookmark at 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, Doug Keck interviews Father Timothy Gallagher on his book, Struggle in the Spiritual Life and the Discerning Priest. So you can see that at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, or, and hear that, hear that or see that, hear that here on uh, EWTN Radio. 4.30 Eastern Time, bookmark with Father Timothy Gallagher. Well, we've ran out of time and we unfortunately still have callers, so uh, I'm sorry that happened. Um, but uh, that, that's simply the case. Uh, maybe quickly here, somebody asks how to find a balance between the rules in the Bible and the world. Uh, find a teacher, and the church is the mother teacher. Uh, that's where you're going to find the balance and where to find what in the Bible uh, applies to you in your life because the church has been teaching it for 2,000 years. Well, thank you for listening to Open Line Friday today, and I'll be back next week with you, as will uh, Jack Williams, I'm presuming. Until then, God bless, and have a great Father's Day. <laughs>